Chapter Three of In Brief Authority by F. Anstey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter Three: Fine Feathers. Mrs. Wibberley Stimson was the first of her party to recover consciousness. When she did, she was greatly surprised to find that it was broad daylight and that she was lying on a grassy slope behind which was a forest of huge pines. Close beside her were the recumbent forms of her husband and family which led her to the natural conclusion that the car must have met with an accident. "'Sidney!' she cried, shaking him by the shoulder. "'Speak to me. You're—you're you're not seriously hurt, are you?' "'Eh, what?' he replied sleepily, and evidently imagining that he was comfortably in bed at home. "'All right, my dear, all right. I'll get up and bring in the tea-tray presently. Lots of time.' "'Why, hello?' he exclaimed, after being shaken once more, as he sat up and rubbed his eyes. "'How do we all come to be here?' The others were awake by this time. "'And now we're here,' put in Clarence. "'Where are we, eh, Mater?' "'It is no use asking me, Clarence. I know no more than you do. The last thing I remember was our all getting into the car to go and see the pageant committee. I have a vague recollection of ostriches. But no, I must have been dreaming them.' However, the car seems to have upset somehow, only I don't see it about anywhere. No, said Mr. Stimson, or old thingamajig, or those fellows with the trumpets either. Dumped us down here and gone off with the car, said Clarence. Looks as if we'd been the victims of a practical joke, what? They would never dare to do that, said his mother. I expect they've missed their way in the dark. Very careless of them. I don't know what Lady Harriet and the committee will think of me. They'll probably ask somebody else to take the part of Queen before we can get there, for I'm sure we must be a good hundred miles away from Gablehurst. The Baron said that he was taking us to Märchenland, Mrs. Stimson, said Daphne, and I'm almost sure that that is where we really are. And where may Märchenland be? inquired Mrs. Stimson sharply. I never heard of it myself. Well, said Daphne. It's another name for—for for Fairyland, you know. Fairyland, indeed, replied Mrs. Wibberley Stimson with some irritation. You will find it difficult to persuade me to believe that I am in Fairyland, Miss Heritage. To begin with, there is no such place, and if there was, perhaps you will kindly tell me how we could possibly have got to it. Through the air, explained Daphne patiently. That car was drawn by storks, you see, not ostriches. "'When you have quite woke up, Miss Heritage,' said Mrs. Stimson, "'you will realise what nonsense you are talking.' "'Whatever this place is,' said Clarence, "'it don't look English, somehow, to me. "'I mean to say, that town over there, what?' He pointed across the wide plain to a cluster of towers, spires, gables, and pinnacles, which glittered and gleamed faintly through the shimmering morning haze. "'It certainly has a rather continental appearance,' observed his father. "'If it has,' said Mrs. Wibberley Stimson, "'it is only some buildings or scenery or something they've run up for the pageant, "'so we haven't been taken in the wrong direction after all.' "'I believe, Mummy," chirped Ruby, "'Miss Heritage is right, and this is Fairyland.' "'Don't be so ridiculous, child. "'You'll believe next that we came here in a car drawn by flying storks, I suppose.' "'No, Mater,' said Clarence, "'I'm not so sure we mayn't have. "'What I mean is—' There's some sort of flying machine coming along now. 
I grant you it isn't drawn by storks, but they're birds, anyhow, and there seems to be someone in the car, too. Nothing of the kind, declared Mrs. Wibberley Stimson obstinately. At least, one may fancy one sees anything, with the sun in our eyes as it is. Well, upon my word, she added, still incredulously, as an iridescent, shell-shaped chariot attached to a team of snow-white doves, vol-plane down from a dizzy height to a spot only a few yards away. I really could not have. Who and what can this old person be? The occupant of the chariot had already got out of it, and was slowly coming towards them, supporting herself on a black crutch-handled staff. As she drew nearer, they could see that she was a woman of great age. She wore a large ruff, a laced stomacher, wide quilted petticoats, and a pointed hat with a broad brim. Her expression was severe, but not unkindly, while she evidently considered herself a personage of some importance. "'She looks exactly like the fairy godmother in the pictures,' whispered Ruby. "'Whoever she may be,' said her mother, scrambling to her feet with more haste than dignity, "'I suppose I shall have to go and speak to her, as I presume I am the person she has come to meet.' However, it was Daphne who was addressed by the newcomer. "'The called Chamberlain, Baron Toyhats von Eisenbanden, has brought me the glad tidings of your arrival, my child,' she said in a high, cracked voice. "'And... As the high official called godmother to the royal family, I felt that I should be the first to bid you welcome. This was more than Mrs. Wibberley Stimson could be expected to stand without a protest. Pardon me, she said, throwing back her cloak as though she were in need of air. Pardon me, madam, but I think you are mistaking my daughter's governess for me. I am Mrs. Wibberley Stimson. The old lady turned sharply, and as her eyes fell on the matron's indignant face and heaving bosom, she instantly became deferential and almost apologetic. "'You must forgive me, my dear,' she said, "'for not recognizing you before, but at my age, I may tell you I am nearing the end of my second century, one is apt to forget the flight of time, or it may be that time in your world flies more quickly than in ours.' I did not stay to hear more from the baron than that he had succeeded in finding our queen, and, to be quite plain with you, I was unprepared to find you so mature. Then, thought Mrs. Wibberley Stimson confusedly, she had been brought here for the pageant after all. But what very odd people seem to be getting it up! Baron, whatever his name is, appeared to be quite satisfied that I was suited to the part, she said coldly. Of course, if you require someone younger. There can be no manner of doubt, my dear, that you are the queen we've been seeking, so the mere fact that you are rather older than some of us expected is of no importance whatever. Thank you, said Mrs. Wibberley Stimson. I do not consider myself more than middle-aged, and have generally been taken for younger than I am, Mrs. I haven't the pleasure of knowing your name. Here they call me the fairy Vogelflug. In the neighbouring kingdom of Claire de Lune, my name is Voldoiseau. I have officiated as court godmother to the reigning royal families in both countries for many generations. "'I thought you were a fairy godmother,' cried Ruby, "'and I'm sure you're a good fairy, and can do all sorts of wonderful things.' "'I used to, my child, in my younger days, 
but my powers are not what they were, and I seldom exercise them now, because it exhausts me too severely to do so. Once there were several of us called godmothers, but I am the only one left, and my health is so poor that I can do little for my godchildren but give them moral teaching and wise counsel. However, such good offices as I can still render shall be entirely at your service. "'You are very kind,' said Mrs. Wibberley Stimson, resenting the other's air of patronage. "'But all my children are already provided with godparents. "'As you tell me you are a fairy,' she continued, "'I suppose I must accept your word for it. "'But it will take a great deal more than that "'to make me believe that we are in fairyland.' "'I thought,' said the fairy, "'you already knew that the name of this country is Märchenland.' It should be said here once for all that the Wibberley Stimpsons found no difficulty in understanding or making themselves perfectly intelligible to any Märchenlanders, although they always had a curious feeling that they were conversing in a foreign language. "'Whatever the country is called,' said Mrs. Wibberley Stimpson aggressively, "'I should like some explanation of that Baron Treutz's conduct in entrapping us into coming here. I was distinctly given to understand that I had been chosen to be the queen at our local pageant, and they were being taken to talk over the arrangements with the committee. Now he has gone off in the most ungentlemanly way, and left us stranded and helpless here. "'You must have misunderstood the good baron,' said the fairy Vogelflug, "'and he is far too loyal to desert you. He has merely hastened on to Eswareinmal, the city whose walls and towers you see yonder, to prepare for your reception.' As you probably know, he has devoted himself with the most untiring zeal to his mission of seeking you out and restoring you to your inheritance. He never said a word about that to me, not a word. If I am really entitled to any property in this country, I should be glad to know where it is situated, and what is its exact value. Then, said the fairy, I may inform you that you are entitled, as the daughter of your late father, our long-lost and much-lamented Prince Chrysopras, to no less a possession than the crown of Märchenland. "'You... you don't say so!' gasped Mrs. Wibberley Stimson. "'The crown of... Sydney, did you hear that?' "'It's some mistake, my dear,' he said. "'Must be. My wife's father, ma'am, though in some respects uh, a remarkable character, was never a prince, at least that I have heard of. "'It doesn't at all follow, Sidney,' said his wife in a nettled tone, "'that anything you don't happen to have heard of is not a fact. There always was a mystery about poor dear papa's origin. He was most reticent about it, even with me, and I know it was rumoured that Princely was not his real name. So it would not surprise me in the least if Mrs. Fogelplug turned out to be right, though I cannot say till she gives us further particulars.' "'I will do so most willingly,' said the fairy. "'But as it will take me some time to relate them, "'I should strongly advise you all to sit down.' They seated themselves round her in a semicircle, and presently she began. "'You must know,' she said, "'that our mighty and gracious sovereign, the late King Smacht, "'was twice wedded. "'By his first wife he had an only son, Prince Chrysopras, "'a gallant and goodly prince, beloved not only by his father, but by the whole nation. Well, after mourning his first wife for a longer period than is customary, King Smaracht took to himself another, who was much younger than himself, besides being marvellously beautiful. 
"'And of course she hated the poor prince,' said Ruby. "'Stepmothers always do in the stories.' "'I have not said she hated him,' said the court godmother, who did not like her points to be anticipated. "'On the contrary, she treated him with every mark of affection, and was constantly bestowing on him gifts of the costliest description. One day she presented him with a wondrous mechanical horse, fiercer and more mettlesome than even the steeds that are born in Märchenland.' "'Motorbike, what?' suggested Clarence, sapiently. "'A mechanical horse is what I said,' repeated the fairy, "'resembling others in shape and beauty, but made of metal. "'Prince Chrysopras, being a skilful and fearless horseman.' "'Indeed he was,' put in Mrs. Wibberley Stimson. "'He used to ride regularly in the row, almost to the last. "'On joggles, such a dear brown fat cob!' He was one of what I believe was known as the Liver Brigade. A fact which, for some reason I can't pretend to fathom, seems to be causing you amusement, Miss Heritage. Daphne, whose sense of humour was occasionally an inconvenience to her, had certainly found the notion of a fairy prince in the Liver Brigade a little too much for her gravity. However, she attributed her lapse to the name of the horse. "'It was the name they gave it at the livery stables,' said Mrs. Wibberley Stimson. I really cannot see myself. But we are interrupting this good lady here. You are, said the fairy. I was about to say that Prince Chrysopras was greatly delighted by his royal stepmother's gift, and at once leapt on the back of the strange steed. What I call asking for trouble, commented Clarence. I know what happened, Ruby struck in eagerly. It flew right up into the air with him, and poor Grandpapa fell off. "'If he had, none of you would be here at the moment,' said the fairy. "'Don't be in such a hurry, my child. He was much too good a rider to fall off. But the horse flew up and up with him till both could no longer be seen. The remains of the steed were found long afterwards on a mountain-top. But nothing more was ever seen of the prince, who was supposed to have perished in one of our lakes.' "'Then he must have fallen off, after all,' insisted Ruby. "'No, no, Ruby,' said her mother with the sense that, where the credit of her family was concerned, nothing was too improbable for belief. The horse flew with him to England, or somewhere in Europe, or else he couldn't have met your dear grandmother, whom none of you ever saw, for she died long before you were born, and I expect that, after he got off, the horse flew back again, and was just able to get to Märchenland before the machinery broke down, and dear papa, very naturally, would not care for people to know that he had got there by such peculiar means which accounts for my never having heard of it before. Exactly, said the fairy Vogelflug. But King Smacht only knew that his son was lost to him, and when he discovered that the horse was enchanted, and that his queen had bribed the hereditary grand magician to construct it, his anger knew no bounds. Enough to annoy anybody, said Mr. Wibberley Stimson. I should certainly. He ordered, the fairy went on, without appearing to feel any interest in what Mr. Stimson would have done in similar circumstances, both the Queen and the Grand Magician to be enclosed in a barrel, the inside of which had been set with sharp nails, and rolled down into the lake from the top of the mountain. "'I should say myself,' remarked Mr. Stimson, "'that that was going a little too far, but he certainly had great provocation.' He also commanded that all wizards and enchanters should renounce their practices for ever, and adopt some other calling, or be banished from the country. "'There,' said Mrs. Wibberley Stimson, approvingly, 
I think he was so right. I would never encourage any of those clairvoyant people myself. And did he marry a third wife at all? Not if he was wise, said Clarence. No, although it grieved him sorely that he had no heir to succeed him. But towards the end of his days he dreamt repeatedly that his son was yet living. He beheld him in these visions a wanderer in some far-off land, earning his bread as a musician, for in music he had rare skill. "'I fancy he must have given it up when he took to finance,' said Mrs. Wibberley Stimson. Though he kept his taste for it, I well remember his buying a beautiful orchestrion which used to be in the picture gallery. "'Well,' pursued the fairy, "'in further dreams it was revealed to the king that his son was married to one who, though not of his own race or rank, was both gently born and very fair to see.' "'Pollentine was the maiden name of your grandmother on my side, my dears.' explained Mrs. Stimson to her family. She must have been good-looking as a girl, judging by a daguerreotype I had of her. Her father was a highly distinguished auctioneer and estate agent in East Croydon, as I dare say was also revealed in the King's dream. "'Of that I can say nothing,' replied the court godmother. "'But I know that further visions showed him his son as a widower with an only daughter, and later still that he was no longer living. And so much was the King impressed that he caused a search to be made for this granddaughter of his in every country that is known to us. Even when he lay on his deathbed, he did not give up hope that she would be found, and so he left his kingdom in charge of his trusted favourite, Marshal Federhelm, as regent, with strict injunctions to continue seeking for the missing queen. "'And how,' inquired Mrs. Wibberley Stimson, "'did the Marshal manage to find me out?' "'It was not he.' He soon convinced himself that all further endeavours were useless. No, it is to the devotion of our worthy court chamberlain, the Baron Treuherz von Eisenbenden, that your discovery is owing. He had grieved so deeply to see Märchenland without a sovereign that, after the example of faithful John, the founder of his family, he had placed iron hoops round his chest to keep his heart from breaking. "'We heard him go,' said Clarence. "'Thought it was only his braces.' At length, continued the fairy, the baron went in secret to Xuriel, the astrologer royal, and induced him to consult the stars, which Xuriel did, and by much study and intricate calculation he succeeded in ascertaining the exact spot in the other world where the queen would be discovered, and even the means by which she might be recognized. Ah, said Mrs. Wibberley Stimson, I shall begin to believe in astronomy after this, but even now I don't quite understand how Baron Troitz got to Ingelgarth. That was by my assistance. I placed my travelling car at his service, with the wise storks that fly straight to any place to which they are directed, even though they may never have heard of it before. Happily for Märchenland, Xuriel's calculations have proved correct, except that he did not foresee that the Baron would bring back two sovereigns instead of one. "'What, is the Governor going to be king?' inquired Clarence. "'My hat!' "'That would be ridiculous, Clarence,' said his mother. "'When your father hasn't a drop of royal blood in his veins, "'he can't even rank as Prince Consort.' "'Not so, my dear, not so,' corrected the fairy. "'By the custom of Märchenland, anyone who weds the sovereign shares the throne, "'and your husband will be as truly the king of this country as you will be its queen.' "'Oh, is that the rule?' said Mrs. Wibberley Stimson, not best pleased. "'Well, Sidney, I trust you will show yourself equal to your position, that is all. 
"'I trust so, my love,' he replied uneasily. "'It... it's come on me at rather short notice. However—' "'If Daddy and Mumps are king and queen,' asked Ruby, "'will Edna and me be princesses?' "'Undoubtedly you will,' said the court godmother. "'Then Clarence will be a prince. So you see, Miss Heritage, dear, you have met a prince after all.' "'Shut up, Kitty,' said the new crown prince in some confusion. "'And what will Miss Heritage be, Mummy?' "'Miss Heritage will be what she was before, my dear, your governess.' "'But I shan't want one any more. We're in Fairyland now, and fairy princesses haven't got to do lessons. Oh, Mums, couldn't you make Miss Heritage a princess too?' do why not said the fairy glancing at daphne whose colour had risen slightly anybody might very well take her to be one as it is miss heritage said mrs wibberley stimpson has i am sure too much good sense to expect a title of any kind she will continue to be my daughter's instructress and i may possibly find a place for her as mistress of the robes or something but it's much too early to say anything definite at really edna she broke off suddenly. How you can sit there calmly reading as if nothing had happened! I was merely running through my lecture notes again, mother, said Edna. If I am a princess, she added, for the benefit of the court godmother, that is no reason why I shouldn't go on cultivating my mind. Now you're a princess, my dear, replied her mother. It doesn't signify to anybody whether your mind is cultivated or not. It signifies a great deal to me, mother, said Edna and resumed the study of her notes with an air of conscious merit. "'I must say one thing, Mrs. Fogelpluck,' Mrs. Wibberley Stimpson proceeded. "'It would have been more considerate if I had been given proper notice, and a reasonable time to prepare for such a complete change as this. I do feel that.' She did. It was a great deprivation to her to have lost the opportunity of mentioning casually to her Gablehurst friends, and Lady Harriet especially, that she would shortly be leaving them to occupy a throne. "'Precisely my own feeling,' said Mr. Stimson, thinking regretfully how the news would have made that confounded fellow Thistleton sit up, and of the sensation it might have produced in the train to the city. It is, to say the least of it, unfortunate that I had no time to communicate with the other members of my firm. "'And there's Clarence, too,' said his fond mother. "'His company will be quite helpless without him.' "'They may be in a bit of a hole at first, he admitted, thankful now that he had said nothing about his resignation or the readiness with which it had been accepted. Still, no fellow is indispensable. What?' The fairy explained that haste had been unavoidable, as it might have been injurious to the storks if they had remained longer in a climate to which they were unaccustomed. "'But why send storks to fetch us at all?' demanded Mrs. Wibberley Stimpson. "'Why not some more modern conveyance?' There they are again, with the car, coming back for us, I expect. Yes, I can make out Baron Troitz and the Trumpeters, and there seems to be a gentleman in armour with them. The Regent, Marshal Federhelm, said the fairy, is coming to offer his congratulations. Is he? cried Mrs. Wibberley Stimpson, scrambling to her feet again in some dismay. A Regent! I, I wish I knew the proper way of addressing him. The storks by this time had brought the car to ground, and were now standing about on one leg, with folded wings and an air of detachment. The marshal alighted, and advanced slowly towards the Stimpsons, while the heralds sounded their trumpets. He made a formidable and warrior-like figure, in his golden half-armour of a kind unknown to antiquarians, and great jackboots of gilded leather, 
He was tall, and the towering mass of waving feathers that crowned his helmet made him look taller still. His visor was raised, showing a swarthy, hook-nosed face, with quick, restless eyes like a lizard's, a fierce moustache, and a bristling beard that spread out in a stiff black fan. "'You had better speak to him, Sidney,' whispered his wife, overcome by sudden panic. "'I really can't.' "'Er,' uh, began Mr. Stimson nervously, "'I believe I have the pleasure of addressing the Regent. We—we are the new King and Queen, you know, and these are the other members of the family.' The Marshal seemed a little taken aback at first, but he promptly recovered himself, and bending so low that his feathers brushed Mrs. Wibberley Stimson's nose, he placed in her hand a small velvet-covered baton studded with gold stars. "'Oh, thank you very much, I'm sure,' she said. "'It's quite charming. Has it got an address or anything inside it?' "'The symbol of my authority, Your Majesty,' he said, with soldierly curtness. "'I have long desired to surrender to hands more worthy to govern than mine.' "'Very handsome of you to say so,' replied Mr. Stimson. "'But I dare say you aren't altogether sorry to get out of it, eh?' "'It's too lofty a position, sire, for a rough, simple warrior like myself.' he said. Nothing but a sense of duty to my country would have made me accept the regency at all. "'I'm sure,' said Mrs. Wibberley Stimson, "'we shall find you have carried on the kingdom for us as satisfactorily as possible.' "'The people appear to think so, Your Majesty. But I'm forgetting the chief purpose I'm here for. I have the honour to announce that the procession will shortly be on its way to escort Your Majesties to your coronation, which is to take place this morning in the great church of Esvaraimal. Coronation, Mrs. Wibberley Stimson almost screamed, before we have so much as had our breakfast, and in these things we are wearing now? I never heard of anything so preposterous. I don't care much myself, said Mrs. Stimson, about being crowned on an empty, without having had something to eat, if it's only an egg. If they're going to crown the governor in a dinner jacket and white tie, Clarence muttered to Edna, we shall never hear the last of it, that's all. "'There's nothing to make a fuss about, my dear,' said the court godmother to Mrs. Wibberley Stimson, as though she were addressing a forward child. "'Look behind you, and you'll see that everything you may require is already provided.' They looked, and saw two velvet marquises, one striped in broad bands of apple-green and mazarine blue, the other in pale rose and cream, which a party of attendants had just finished putting up. "'In those pavilions,' continued the fairy, "'you'll find not only food prepared for you, but robes such as are fitting for a coronation. You'll have plenty of time both to eat and change your dress before the procession can possibly arrive. She's not likely to have got our measurements right, grumbled Mrs. Wibberley Stimson to her eldest daughter as they moved towards the Rosen Cream Pavilion. I should have much preferred to be fitted by a court dressmaker. Such a mistake to rush things like this. I rather like that Marshal, Edna. There's something very gentlemanly and straightforward about him though I can't see why he shouldn't wear a proper uniform instead of that absurd armour. "'Shan't be sorry to get some breakfast, my boy,' Mrs. Stimson remarked, as he and Clarence were making for the other marquis. "'I feel a bit peckish after being so long in the night air.' "'I should like a tub first, Governor.' "'I'm afraid,' said Mrs. Stimson, "'that's expecting too much in these parts.' However, on entering, they discovered, in addition to the delicacies and gorgeous costumes laid out for them, two great crystal baths filled with steaming water, which exhaled a subtle but delicious perfume. "'Doing us proud, eh, Governor?' 
was Clarence's comment on the general luxuriousness, and his father admitted that everything seemed to have been done regardless of expense. While the male and female members of the royal party were enjoying the privacy of their respective tents, the marshal outside was expressing his sentiments to the court chamberlain with much vigour and freedom. "'Well, Baron,' he began, "'this is a great service you've done, Märchenland, but I hope you're feeling proud of yourself.' "'Oh, as for that, Marshal,' modestly replied the ingenious Baron, "'I've done no more than my duty.' "'The devil take you and your duty,' growled the Marshal. "'Why, in the name of all the fiends, couldn't you have left things as they were?' "'But, Marshal,' the baron protested. When our learned astrologer royal discovered the whereabouts of our lawful queen, you were loudest in approval of my expedition. How could I oppose, after you had been gabbling and cackling about it to the whole court, and it had even reached the ears of the people? Besides, I was given to understand that this daughter of Chrysopas's was a mere girl. If she had been... But what have you brought us? A middle-aged matron with a husband and family." "'I own it was not what I expected,' said the baron. "'But since it was so, what could I do but bring them all?' "'Do? Left them where they were, of course. Come back and said that that little fool of a cereal had made a miscalculation, as he generally does. "'I should have been a traitor had I thus denied my queen, for, as you have seen, she bears on her breast the very jewel of her father the prince, even as the stars foretold.' "'Undoubtedly she is his daughter,' the marshal admitted reluctantly. It never occurred to him for a moment, nor would it occur to any of his countrymen, that the pendant was anything but absolutely conclusive proof of Mrs. Wibberley Stimson's right to the throne. Merchenland's notions of what constitutes legal evidence have always been and remain elementary. "'But it's pretty plain,' he went on, "'that the young fool must have made a most unworthy marriage "'to have begotten one so utterly lacking in all queenliness and dignity.' "'She will soon acquire both,' the court chamberlain affirmed stoutly, "'as she becomes more accustomed to her position.' "'She may,' declared the marshal, "'when a frog grows feathers. "'And this consort of hers! "'Is he a fit monarch from Märchenland? "'Even you, Baron, can hardly say that for him. "'I may not have been beloved as regent,' at least I have made my authority respected. But what do such a couple as this know about ruling a country? They'll make a hopeless hash of it. Without guidance, perhaps, the baron admitted, but they will have the inestimable advantage, Marshal, of our experience and advice. Ha! said the Marshal. So they will, so they will. I was forgetting that. No doubt they will submit to our guidance, went on the baron, and thus we shall be able to save them from any dangerous indiscretions. "'Just so,' agreed the marshal, with the flicker of a smile. The court chamberlain, at all events, spoke in all sincerity. His hereditary instinct alone would have been enough to ensure his loyalty to his new sovereigns, whatever he might think of them in private, and they were his own fines, which gave them an added value in his estimation, as will easily be understood by any collector of curiosities.' End of chapter 3